For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. I think we can all agree the current political moment is fraught. But how does it compare to the other fraught political moments in history? It felt for a time in part of that decade like everything was falling apart. Young people against old people, anti-war violence, peace movement. I'm former U.S. Attorney Preet Bharara. And this week, presidential historian Doris Kearns Goodwin joins me on my podcast, Stay Tuned with Preet. We talk about difficult times in America's history and how its people overcame them. The episode is out now. Search and follow Stay Tuned with Preet wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Max. It's, uh, you know, the holidays. So we're taking a week off, but we wanted to put through uh, an episode from earlier this year, one of the uh, most memorable conversations I've had on this show or anywhere else. It was with Maggie Haberman, who uh, covers the Trump White House for The New York Times, in addition to many other things that she said and did during this interview, Maggie uh, reported and filed a story uh, while we were talking. First time that has happened on the show, and uh, I'm going to predict here the last time it happens on the show. Here's my conversation from July with Maggie Haberman, uh, one of my all-time favorites. We're going to take next week off, too. We'll see you in January. And I just want to say thanks for listening this year. It's uh, It's been a really good year for the Longform Podcast, and uh, we really appreciate the time you chose to spend with us. Hello, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with uh, Evan Ratliff and Aaron Lammer. Gentlemen, hello. Hey. Hey, Max. We are recording this on uh, Tuesday yeah. evening, right before the show comes out. And uh, I did this week's interview this morning. Wow. That's very a, rare short turnaround. It was a very quick turnaround for the long form podcast, but it was the right guest for it. I talked to uh, Maggie Haberman this morning. No, you can't. You can't give her more than like a forty-eight hour lead, or you're gonna like miss something. That's true, and also it was uh, a pretty interesting morning to talk to her. Uh, she walked into the studio with her computer open and her phone like on her phone, and she put them down and was like, "All right, let's go." And I was, and I was like. Uh, are you going to close your computer? And she was like, no. <laughs> and she was literally, Aaron, I'm not exaggerating. She reported an article for the New York Times about Paul Manafort and Russia uh, during the interview. Wow. You have entered the white hot center of the scoop, political scoop universe this morning. It was also, I mean, with the, the president's tweets about sessions in the morning, it was just, it was a really interesting morning to talk to her, I think, uh, for her even... I think she's been at the White Hot Center of this for, for all six months. And uh, for her, Tuesday was, was uh, pretty significant. I, for uh, people who strangely don't read the news but listen to the show, Maggie Haberman is the uh, uh, Washington correspondent for the New York Times, the Trump correspondent for the New York Times. She's the White House correspondent. She was working uh, for the Times throughout the campaign covering Trump. Before that, she was at Politico covering Trump. And uh, years ago, she worked for both 
uh, New York City tabloids and also covered Trump there. So she's been talking to him for, uh, you know, over a decade. A lot of the big interviews that Trump has done have been with her. I look forward to this. Here is Max with Maggie Haberman. You're definitely the first person who's walked into this one of these interviews with a computer open typing okay. and haven't looked at me in like sorry yet. It's okay. So one time um, in 2010, when I was pregnant with my third kid, I was uh, marching in a parade covering um, Carl Palladino and Andrew Cuomo, and I had my computer balanced on my belly, so this is open. So this is actually doesn't feel that strange. This is nothing for you. No, this is not that big a deal. Does this ever stop for you? Uh, no. No, it's one long day. Like I said that to somebody else recently. It's it's like when you have a newborn. Yeah. But some of it is also that like, look, like there's that feeling of being through the looking glass, right? And so like when you're really tired and you have a newborn, I don't know if you have children. but I do. Okay, so then you do know. And like when you have a baby that sleeps in spurts of two hours or so, you just have this constant feeling of like being awake and reality feels a little bit as if like you push on the walls and they'll bend a bit. And that is a little bit the effect this president has on people, both <laughs> in his own orbit and outside. And it's having that effect on you? Right. Uh, well, I'm just very tired. Have you been very tired for like two years? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I have three children, so I've been very tired for longer than that. <laughs> but this is just endless. It's just never, never, never ends. Is it fun? Sometimes. Not today. <laughs> but that's just because there's too much going on. Today's not fun because it's so busy. It's, just, it's really busy, yeah. Those aren't the fun days when it's crazy? Some days are. Today's not one of them. <laughs> Today's, every now and then Trump reaches a new sort of rung of norm breaking or something unusual. And the stuff he was tweeting about Sessions this morning was pretty uh, caustic. So I think it has a lot of people in the government freaked out. Help me understand what you do. Like, you wake up in the morning with the rest of us. Mm-hmm. You see tweets like those. Mm-hmm. What do you do next? Somebody emails them around internally on our list, or I retweet them as well. Um, and then we think about what they mean. If the tweets are not a big deal, you know, or sort of minor or repetitions of things he said before, then we don't really focus on them. If they are something new, like today with sessions, where they are pretty clearly aimed at making somebody leave without actually having to fire them, then we evaluate how to handle it. Hang on just one second. I'm sorry. You can type loudly if you want. It's okay. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> sorry. There's some Manafort stuff happening. Anyway, go on. Do you need to like respond to it? Do you I need... just did. It's fine. Okay. <laughs> can move on. What about people within the administration? Are you talking to them about it? Yeah. I mean, look, there's... If you're a member of the administration, if you're another cabinet secretary, you're not looking at this and feeling as if the ground beneath your feet is particularly solid, right? I mean... How does that conversation happen? So I try not to get too specific into like methods and sourcing and things like that. That's I mean, I never talk about sourcing. But a lot of people talk late at night in this administration. There's a real fear for most people that they're being monitored in some way. Mm-hmm. So people use different kinds of phones. Um, has that been the case since day one or has that changed? It has been the case since like day 20. <laughs> it's been It's been the case for a while. It's been the case for a while. And that's something that, like, is openly discussed with you also? Yeah, it is. It is. People are scared. So when the president starts tweeting about Sessions and it's clearly an attempt to get him to leave, 
do those people reach out to you? Do you reach out to them? Sometimes people reach out to me. Sometimes I reach out to them. I mean, it's become sort of an ongoing running conversation with a lot of people at this point. So when I got up this morning, I got up a little bit after the tweets had already happened. And um, <laughs> what like you look at your phone for the first time, like, what do you think? How do you feel when you see those? I mean, A, I'm sort of inured to them, right? So it's like seeing this for a long time. My feeling is this is going to be a long day. <laughs> That's my feeling. Um, I don't have emotions about this. I can't have emotions about this. If I have emotions about this, I can't do my job. This is, you know, I'm not I'm not in the story. So, I mean, when you're asking how I feel about it, I feel as if this is incredibly unusual and uh, I've never seen anything like this before and that it is a challenge to figure out how to cover it and how to do it in a way that conveys to people that this is something unusual. Because I think one of the temptations of a lot of reporters in this era, and it's sort of a natural temptation of Washington and White House reporters in general, is to refer back to some arc of history that pre-told what we're seeing now, or that is at least familiar, or that gives you some common frame. But there's no context for this in history. And social media is a lot of it. But this really would be, my colleague Peter Baker had a great line once about how this would be like listening to the Nixon tapes playing out in real time. And it's a little more than that, but he, I think that's a pretty apt analogy. How do you make sense of it? I mean, if, if there is no context, if there's nothing to draw on, your job is to try and help people understand it. So, Well, I try to make people understand him and why he's doing things. That's what I consider my job. And I consider my job to try to explain to people what the political ramifications are. I mean, one of his gifts is that he just bends people to his own will and his view of reality, right? So did you ever read the book Harold and the Purple Crayon? No. So it's a book about a little boy named Harold um, who has a purple crayon, and Harold wakes up. He can't sleep one night, um, and he goes out, and he kind of like draws his own city, and he draws buildings, and he draws, and he ends up back in his own room. But Trump is like some version of Harold with the purple crayon. He is drawing his own reality, and he wants you to kind of follow him down that path. And in his view, all reality is subjective, and it can be kind of twisted and played with. And so my goal is to help people understand the difference between what they saw on The Apprentice and who he is. Your computer's still open. Yeah. Do I have any chance of getting you to close it? No. <laughs> Not right now. Okay. Maybe in a little bit. I'm sorry. No, that's fine. That's fine. I was hoping to um, take you back in time, but I'm not sure I can do it. Try. All right. Where were you on election night? I was in the New York Times newsroom. Ashley Parker, my former colleague, who's now at the Washington Post, reminded me that I snuck out at one point, I guess, in the late afternoon and met her at Trump Tower for a little bit, but my assignment was in the newsroom. So. Did you think he was going to win? I didn't, but I was not shocked when he did. And when he did, did you realize what it meant for the world and for America and for him and for you? Yes. Immediately? Yes. What did it mean for you? For me, I didn't actually envision that I would end up being part of the D.C. team. So uh, it's a little different. Um what did you think it was going to mean for you? Well, uh, <laughs> the president has a bit of a habit of score settling, and so do some people around him. And they were very angry with me about a lot of things and coverage. So that was one thing I wondered about was sort of what the landscape would look like uh, in terms of what it would mean for America. On the just the sort of rawest level, um, I knew that he was not going to change. Um, 
And I knew that he was not going to welcome in the never Trumpers in a show of unity. And I knew, do you know what I mean? Like, so, and I knew that he was not going to reach out to those who didn't vote for him. And he was not going to be the kumbaya president. So, so you didn't think he was going to change, but you did think that maybe in his newfound power, the grudge he was holding against you could become more dangerous? I just wondered how he would adjudicate some of his, um, some of his grievances. Is probably the loosest way that I will put that. <laughs> okay. And I didn't think it was only about me. So then you do get put on that team. If you can think back to that night and like if you could have predicted how the first six months of the administration would go, how close has it, has it hewn to that, do you think? The arc of how this has gone, while it has gone a little faster than I thought it would have, it has generally hewed to what I thought it would be, which is that he would um, find the job incredibly overwhelming, that it would be very different than what he thought it was. Because, I mean, he had always campaigned to win, not really to do the job, right? Like, he didn't spend a whole ton of time thinking about how he was going to be president or what he would do as president. And he didn't really think he was going to win, despite their protestations to the contrary. Uh, He was as stunned as anybody on election night. Um, Have you talked to him about that night? Yes, he insists he wasn't stunned. But let me give you an instance for why I know he was. So one of the things he does in times of great stress is... uh, he bores in on something incredibly tiny and like fixates on it. He has a real obsessive streak. Um, and so Ashley Parker, the aforementioned, and I had written with two other colleagues a story that weekend before the election about it was really a pre-mortem, honestly. And you know the facts of it were all fine. The tone probably should have changed in retrospect. But, um, but he was um, so angry about it. And the thing that he was angry about was that we had said that his aides had finally wrested his Twitter feed away from him, which was like one of the several times this has been written, right? And it lasts a certain amount of time. But um, but he doesn't like when people write that in the same way that he doesn't like when people write that he watches a lot of TV, which he does, because he sees that as shorthand for saying he doesn't work that hard. And so on Twitter, you know, we had written that his aides had kind of gotten it away. And... Um, my colleague Patrick Healy called him at 11 o'clock on election night when it was pretty clear he was going to win. And um, he said he called him on his cell, which Trump would like continue to answer. And by the way, continues to still use his unsecure cell phone, uh, the leader of the free world. He Patrick called him on his cell and he said, Mr. Trump, it looks like you're going to be the next president. How does it feel? And Trump did sort of, a, oh, great honor, great honor. And then literally within five seconds, you tell Maggie and her little friend that nobody took my Twitter away. And I didn't use the quote, but I did. I, I was doing live chatting that night on the Times website, and I mentioned, you know, we should just throw this in as an interlude so people understand their new president, that he started, like, screaming at our colleague Patrick Healy about the Twitter piece. So, so none of this has really surprised me. Does that answer your question? Yeah, it also explains a little bit why you might have been worried about how he was going to adjudicate those grievances. Yeah, his penchant for payback is what I, I was worried. So. so has that happened? I mean, no. Why do you think it hasn't happened? It's happened in subtle ways. It hasn't happened in major ways. I think it hasn't happened because I think that he's got too much else going on. <laughs> I think that if he had lost and had time to kind of go through the book of infamy, I don't know where I would have fallen on the list, but would have been somewhere. What are the subtle ways? Uh, I'd rather not say. That's um, just some stuff you shouldn't talk about. Can I ask you a little bit about Sourcing stuff? Sure, I might not answer. Okay, that's fine. Uh, How do you build trust with these people? I don't know. 
<laughs> I mean, you're like, you're asking me a question that I don't know the answer. I, I look in the case of Trump, it's, you know, he's known me a long time. So I think that that's a lot of it. Um, and I think he associates me in his head to some extent with New York tabloids because I worked at the New York Post and the Daily News. And the New York Post is still basically his first read, if not in fact, then in spirit. And I'm pretty good at protecting people. I'm very good at protecting people. I don't talk about sourcing. They're, I mean, they're, they're, this whole world, all of these people are, are always trying to figure out who everyone's sources are. Mm-hmm. And so they do all kinds of skullduggery that's aimed at that. And I'm pretty careful not to fall into it. You mean people within the White House are trying to figure yeah, it out? Yeah, and people around Trump world, you know, even before he was in the White House. Um, I don't know. I'm a good listener. And I take the job seriously. And I take, I try to just sort of put no mustard on anything. What do you mean by that? So, for instance, when we do these interviews with Trump, I like to just let the words stand for themselves. I don't think that we need to put it through the interpreter lens. I mean, like, he can just speak and people can judge what they want. And it does. And I think it's better that way. So I, I think that's part of why. But I don't know. You'd have to ask them. Do your relationships, like, um, ebb and flow? Like, it seems like all the relationships in the White House ebb yeah. and flow? Yeah. Like, you're, you're in close contact with someone and then, like, it cools yeah, and off then, a And then bit. I don't talk to them for, like, a month. And is that based on something you've put in the paper or is it like it, no it's, it's usually something i put in the paper or it's or sometimes increasingly it's based on something where like trump freaks out at something i wrote mm-hmm. and they just get afraid and don't want to talk for a little bit i guess I'm, I'm wondering also just like how interpersonal it is it just feels like such a social place and i wonder how caught up in the social world of it you are the like white it, houses yeah like it feels kind of high school cafeteria-ish there's something to that except it's like high school, the high school cafeteria if like everybody was armed with like tins of lie and like maybe some like Freddy Krueger style knives right I mean like it's not it's not benign which is what you tend to think of when you think of high school Um, there's a degree to which I think these folks don't get that they're playing with live ammo in people's lives you don't think that's settled in yet no how do you know that what's the evidence for that I just think it's um, just the way they talk about this stuff not all of them but some of them it's not about you know, enacting policy or doing what's best for the country. It's winning, mm-hmm. winning their little corner of power. Do you think that in part that's like um, uh, willful ignorance, like like the stakes are so high that you can't quite like stare them in the face? Or do you think it's just... No, I don't think it's that. Really? <laughs> no, I don't. And maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think so. You think it's just like that's how they're wired? Mm-hmm. And it feels like a game? For some of them, yeah. Not all of them. I think a lot of them went in there to serve their country. But I think there is a a cadre of them for whom this is a game. Is there any aspect of it for you that feels like a game? No. I don't think this is a game. I think this is pretty important. Does that feel different than it did like when you were covering City Hall for the Post? And No, because that was, I mean, like, look, this is what's so funny about this comparison of like Trump to, uh, to a big city mayor. Big city mayors actually have to get things done, right? Like you can't sort of like just sit and fight. I mean, frankly, like the de Blasio era is closer to the Trump era, just in terms of sort of like lots of heat and not a ton of stuff getting done. Mm-hmm. Um, Giuliani had, for all of his Michigas, had massive accomplishments. I lived in, the, I grew up in this city. I was born and raised here and I know what it looked like before Giuliani and I know what it looked like after Giuliani. Just in terms of on the basics of crimes, you know, it, it was dramatic. And so Rudy had real um, had real impactful decisions. Bloomberg had real impactful decisions. Trump, he's stylistically like a New York City mayor, but, you know, 
he's not really getting a whole lot done. And so I guess my, that's a larger way of saying that, like, I mean, City Hall was not a game. I mean, it was Rudy's City Hall felt similar to this in certain ways, just in the sense that Rudy would do like three press conferences a day and he loved it and he loved engaging and he loved fighting with the reporters. But Rudy was also a substantive, serious person. People can disagree with what his positions were, but he was a a really sharp brain. So no, I don't, this is not a game. This is not, this is not fun. This is, it's, it's important and I love my job, but I would not describe this as fun. Has your job ever been fun? Yeah. I mean, I think that, look, I think parts of the campaign were a lot of fun. So what? help me understand why this isn't fun and that was. I'm going to struggle answering that. I mean, I think it's just because... Do you see the movie um, Private Parts, the Howard Stern movie? Yeah. So there's that bit where um, Paul Giamatti, as the NBC radio station manager, orders up a, uh, a study on... Um, ratings and, and like a big thick review of why listeners listen to him and why they tune out. And so the, his biggest fans said that they listened for one hour, answer most given as to why I want to hear what he's going to say next. And Paul Giamatti says, well, what, what about the people who don't like him? And the survey taker, whomever data numbers cruncher says, oh, yes, people who don't like him, average listening time was two hours. Answer most given, I want to see what he's going to say next. And Paul Giamatti kind of like plaintively says, but if they hate him, why do they listen, right? So this is this is some of what the Trump campaign was for just, it was mesmerizing. Um, and it was that way for you too? Yeah, oh yeah. I mean, look, he's he's fascinating regardless of how people might feel about him. He is interesting to watch and he knows he is interesting to watch. So that just felt different. This feels as if it's not really clear where the guardrails are. This feels like it's creating a level of instability that I don't know is sustainable and that impacts uh, people in places well outside of the United States. Because he's hasn't modulated himself and now there are stakes? Yes, and because he's attacking his own government. I mean, it's like, it isn't just like, oh, he's so nutty. It's like he's declared war on the intelligence agencies. He's declared war on his own AG. He has made clear he has no compunction about messing with the special counsel that is investigating possible collusion between his campaign and Russia and now investigating um, possible obstruction of justice. That feels a little different to me. And that's not fun. Do do you think that he is in touch with the stakes of what his attacking is. I do government. not. And I don't think he, I think he often, look, this whole idea that he doesn't know what he's doing, I mean, that's stupid. He always has a plan in his head. Now, the plan might be impulsive, but he does have some plan. It might make, not make sense to me or you or whoever. But it isn't like the New York Times led him to water, you know, when we were talking to him about Bob Mueller and James Comey and Sessions. Like, he knew what he, he knew what he was doing and he had wanted to say all this stuff and it's what he thinks. What I don't think he always understands is the impact. Mm-hmm. And I don't think he thinks about it. And I'm not, again, I don't know that he cares. He cares about the impact that is the close, the sort of the most inward ring, right, around him, the most inward circle. If you're looking at the way ripples go out, that first ring is what matters. Can we talk about that interview? Sure. We can talk about the interview that ran last week, but I, I'm actually generally just interested in what it's like to do these interviews. Sure. How does it happen? Does the White House call you? Was that an ask that you made? How do you end up in that room? So there's some stuff I can't talk about on that one. And I'm not being difficult. That's just there's just some things that I can't talk about. But um, there was a meeting that was sort of pre-planned to talk about. A, it was an ongoing discussion about an interview. And at some point, you know, we asked him if he would go on the record. And he did. 
So. And are you, do you like have that ask perpetually out or are there moments that you're like, okay, I'd really like to sit down now? I don't, again, I don't want to get too specific because I don't want to get into a lot of this, but um, I think that we all, um, we all want to uh, speak with him on the record as much as possible. And I think that the New York Times holds a particularly large fascination uh, reverb in his mind. So I Yeah, mean, I've heard you say that a lot. Well, you'll, you'll hear me say it a lot more over the next two, three years. Do you think that's decreasing or increasing with his presidency? Or is it just... I think it's just ever omnipresent. It's like the white whale he's going to be chasing? Yeah, seriously. And it, it it is that basic, right? Like it's just validation from this paper? Yeah. He wouldn't talk to me as much as he does if I wasn't at the Times. I mean, that's just the reality. So he craves the paper's approval. Okay, so they, they grant this interview... You're in the Oval Office, you and your colleagues, and it was just Hope Hicks in there last week? Yes. What's his mood like? Who knows him best, by the way. I mean, just this is sort of the important thing. Uh, his Why do you m- say that? Because, like, most of the people who work for Trump don't really know him that well now, and she does. His mood was great. He was in a really good mood. You know, he was kibitzing. He, he loved the Paris trip. You know, he was talking about... Jets flying overhead, how much fun he had had. He's got a bit of a military enthusiastic side. so You can say fetish. I'm not going to say that word. But, um, but so he was very, um, he was very upbeat. You know, even when he was talking about sessions, it wasn't like he was stewing. I mean, he just was talking. When he said that, when he said he wouldn't have given sessions a job if he had known. I was very surprised that he said that. How do you react in the moment? Like, I mean, you must know as soon as he says that. That's a remarkable thing for a president. Yes, to say. I did. Is it like a shiver goes up your spine? I mean, like what what is that like for you? The air got a little still. I don't know how else to describe it. Look, I mean, I knew he's been angry at sessions. We we broke that story um weeks ago. But uh I was still very surprised that he said what he said. Is it hard for you to not let your jaw hit the floor and say, Do you know what you just said? or push back or follow up? Like how do you do that dance? I mean, one of the things that he doesn't respond very well to is if you ask him, like, there's a couple of very, like, DC-style questions that he doesn't like. So, um, you know, tell me what your three blah, blah, like, he will, that will never go well. Or the standard briefing room question, which is like a 70-part question of, you know, Josh Ernest, please answer these four things. And finally, and then, and like, Josh Ernest will diligently go back, and every press secretary basically has, and go back and answer all four parts. Um of the of the thing, um, Maggie's he, typing. Again. Sorry, no, he'll answer the answer all four parts of the question, which is not. I mean, Trump just is going to he'll pick if you ask him something that's like got multiple clauses, he's going to seize on one, and that's what he'll focus on, and then you won't get the rest of it answered. So he generally sort of goes where he wants to go. Sometimes you have to jump in, but I try not to interrupt him a ton. Okay. You just want to kind of let him go because he's going to get to a place that he wants to get anyway, and that's your job is to just kind of like help him get there and put it out there? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. The best way for people to understand him is basically to um, let him, his words just speak for themselves. And so those tra- the transcripts, and we discovered this during the campaign, were incredibly important. Because of that, because it allowed readers to see what he was like in actual conversation. Yep. What's the response? I mean, there was this kind of like line of criticism after that interview, in particular after you guys released the transcripts of people sort of wishing that you guys had pushed on him harder. 
I don't know what that means, pushed on him harder. Our job is not to... I saw a great tweet about this that was like, they should have tackled him and made him apologize for every time. Like, that's... Our job is to ask him questions. Our job is not to... Do people really think that him saying that he's he wished he hadn't appointed the AG and leaving open the possibility of firing Mueller, that's a soft interview? I'm sorry. Like, I just reject that completely. Are you nervous in those conversations? No. Were you ever? No. Why? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not... Uh, I've covered him for a long time. I'm not... I, I'm. That does not make me nervous. And when he says something like Sessions, is it, is it exciting? I mean, it was stunning. I don't know of another way to... Exciting is not really the word I would use for it. I was just... I was stunned that he said I was very surprised. When you guys walk out of the room, like, what's the <laughs> what's the first thing you say to each other? Somebody among us asked if there was news made. And the other two said, yeah. Um, <laughs> so... And that's the metric that you think of those conversations in? Yes. Yes. It's either news or it's not news. That's my standard. I, and, and just going back to your question about the, you know, you should have been tougher. I... I my goal is to get him to talk. My goal is not to grandstand. And and by the way, these things are now, these comments are now being made by people mostly on Twitter, um, who have never been journalists before and have absolutely no interest in journalism. Until suddenly, after November 9th, everybody decided they were a journalist. So, I feel like there's a lot of certainly a lot of like Twitter chatter, and you engage with it a lot. Sometimes, not a lot. Okay, you engage with it sometimes. Sometimes. When, when do you choose to engage with it? What what rises to the level of something you'll engage with? Um, I probably engage more than I should. Um, if somebody says something that's inaccurate about me, um, if they have a large following, if they are people who can kind of command an audience, then I will say something. Because what happens is that something gets said on Twitter and then it's like the sheen kind of is left over and like the original facts don't even really matter anymore. Um, so... That's usually when I engage. What I ought to just do is much more just tweeting and then not responding. But sometimes people say things that I think are either inaccurate or outrageous or whatever, and then I will respond. How important is Twitter to your job right now? Very. Well, this is, excuse me, the whole morning has been the president's tweets. So it's really important. Yeah, but I mean, you could read his tweets, right? And then you mean not engage back? Yeah, like how how important is it for you? Um, You are uh, active. You've definitely tweeted since we've been talking. Not much, though. Um, not a lot. I can't explain it. I think it's part of it is that it's like I'm plugged into the matrix. I don't know of another way to describe it. Yeah. It's probably not as important to my job as it is. Just how much of like the like pie chart of your brain does it occupy right now? Probably too much. Probably about 20%. Is Twitter fun? It used to be. See, but then it's like the problem with Twitter is that it's people treat it like a video game. And it's almost like the anger video game. It's like you're angry, so you get on and you, you, know, you tweet, except it's your putting out statements. So um, I think Twitter is uh, diminishing returns, when I put it that way. And I think it has been for some time. But yet you're still doing it all the time. It's uh, it's the way we live now, TM. <laughs> Can I ask you some more questions about the president? Sure. Ask away. When was the last time you... Uh, when was last time you... last week. <laughs> was that the last time you talked to him? I, I haven't spoken to him since. Does he ever just call you? I won't talk about things that are not in the paper or in print. I'm sorry. That's okay. Yeah. This probably isn't in there either, but I do wonder. You said before, like in that interview, you guys were kibitzing. I said that? Yeah, just now. 
like you just said, he was in a good mood. Like we were kibitzing. Oh, we were kibitzing about the parade. And yeah, not the rest of it. Yeah, no, I'm saying uh, the question I had. It's very, very hard for me to imagine him making small talk. Well, this is the thing that people miss about him, honestly, is that so much of why he was effective in 2016 and why the people who like him continue to stick with him is that he leavens sort of the darker stuff with humor and he leavens it with being chatty and and interesting and engaging. He is very charming and people don't see that if they don't engage with him one-on-one. But the person you see on the rally stage is often not who you see in private. How is he charming? It's a complicated question uh, and hard to answer. Um, He can seem very engaged with whoever he's talking to, even though I suspect he doesn't remember most of what gets said back to him. He's got that, like, you're the only person in the world He's got that kind of Bill Clinton, I'm only talking to you kind of thing. So, yeah. Which Barack Obama never had. And it's part of why Trump's Twitter feed is so effective. People feel like they're talking to, he's talking to them. What else don't I know about him? That I should. I don't know. I don't know what you know about him. <laughs> I, I know what you've told me in the paper. I mean, what one of the biggest stories that you've had this whole time has been that, like the story about him in the residence after hours and watching TV and the bathrobe line was something that, that upset him. But it was that story, I mean, it has got to be among the most read pieces you've done. And it was just about him, like, kind of living his life. Like, it was about him in repose. Like... What else don't we know about him in the way that he just lives his life? I think you know most of it, honestly. Like, I think really what what I know, readers know. I mean, he's really into television. He doesn't actually really get Twitter. The joke of this whole, like, he's such a genius at Twitter. Like, he doesn't actually really understand Twitter. He doesn't surf Twitter. He's not pulling the memes that get used. Um, Dinners with him are said to be pretty short affairs, because he loses interest pretty quickly in sort of what's going on around. He just has no attention span. I mean, that's sort of the the issue, um, but or a, a limited attention span. Um, he can be withering and very cruel. He can be um, caring and very engaged. I do think he loves his kids quite a bit. I don't know. Ask me something else. <laughs> do you think that he pays attention or cares to, like, people losing their minds about him playing golf too much? I think that he deserves all of the scrutiny that he gets for that, given that he made such a thing about it with Obama. And also, they're at his own properties. I mean, like, everywhere the president goes is an ad, basically, when it's his own properties, right? So I think that that's important. I think it's important, too, but do you think he thinks it's important or cares? No, I don't think he cares. Do you take his attacks on the press seriously? Yes, because most people don't realize that he's playing a game. I mean, I don't have another way to describe it. I found it very alarming during the campaign when he did that. And then I think that on the left, you had a lot of Clinton supporters who unwittingly helped amplify the right's message on that by saying, yes, New York Times, you're terrible to Hillary on the emails or this or that. And I think that that's the problem. What do you think is the problem? That Trump is is eroding faith in institutions. And I think that you've had kind of a sustained effort by Fox News to, over many years, to sort of create its own adventure on news And I think that when, you know, on the other side of the aisle, you started, uh, hang on just one second, I'm sorry. That's okay. You can take that phone call if you need to. I I, I already sent it to um, voicemail. Um, Ask me the question again. I'm sorry. We have a story that we're about to publish. What's the story? Oh, it's just about uh, Manafort's meeting that he's having with Senate intelligence investigators right now. Um, Sorry. That's okay. 
Um, that was what I was on the phone dealing with when I saw you at the Starbucks <laughs> an hour ago. So now that's filed. Now that's filed, yeah. How does that work? You just like send, you know, are you like getting quotes doing reporting and you send them in and someone writes it up? How does it work? Yeah, a colleague is confirming a tip that I got. How often, I mean, that, is that just your whole day? Yeah. And you're doing all this from your phone and your computer? Like you've just been sitting here with me, but you've been talking to how many different people during this conversation? Ben Smith taught me um, that you actually didn't need to be in D.C. to do this, right? I mean, like, so Ben Smith from BuzzFeed is one of my oldest friends, and because uh, he and Glenn Thrush and I used to sit in the basement press room at City Hall together. And Ben was really the progenitor of the I'll cover D.C. from New York thing. Do you know who Steve Dunleavy is? No. Uh, he is a former columnist for the New York Post, and uh, he was an Australian. He started the show A Current Affair, um, or was one of the originals on it. He was fabulous. But um, he's retired, long retired. But he used to um, say you can't cover a fire in Brooklyn from a bar stool in Manhattan. <laughs> and so I always think about that. But you can now. But now you can, right. Uh, look, technology has just changed all of this, right? I mean, look, for the Trump rallies, we often were not with him on the road, in the beginning anyway, like before he became the nominee. We were watching from afar. Uh, a fact that he once made a thing of in a note to me that when I wrote about something he didn't like, he sent me one of his hand-scrawled Sharpie on the printed page, you know, how would you know you weren't there? Something like that. It wasn't wrong that I wasn't there. Um, but um, look, Trump is always selling you, right? Everything is all about selling. So it's all selling you on his vision of reality. How does he sell you when he knows that you know that? He just keeps trying. What do you think his goal is with you? <sighs> to get me to see things his way. That's all. Do you feel like you see things the way he does better than you once did? Is it working? No, I mean, I don't know what that means. I'm, I'm a reporter. You know what I mean? Like, my job is to cover him. And I'm covering him the best I can. He often does not like what I write. So I don't, you know, like I, I, if you're asking me what kind of ROI he's getting, um, <laughs> you know, that's, I don't really know how to answer that. Um, I think that what his goal is always doing is selling people. And I think often when he talks to reporters, it's because he's trying to see if he can sell them. Do you like him? It's not my job to personally like or not like these folks. It's just my job to cover him. But I do enjoy talking to him. I enjoyed talking to Rudy Giuliani, too. I, I enjoyed talking to Mike Bloomberg. I mean, you know, I, I enjoy talking to a lot of people who I cover. You said at the beginning of this that um, you can't have emotions. Well, you can't. I mean, you can, but <laughs> it's not unwise. Is that really a choice you can make, to not have emotions? It's what we have to sort of train our brains to do, right? Mm-hmm. I was a bartender for a really long time, and, like, a lot of what I did was just listen to people talk. So I always say that that's the best training that I had for reporting. And it's true. Like, you learn what people are interested in and who they are and what what they want to talk about. But you need to remove your sense of self. You can't do this job otherwise. It's really hard. Is that harder to do when it is no longer fun because the stakes are so high and there are no guardrails? Uh, it just means you need to pace yourself and really stay very focused. How are you doing on pacing yourself? Not so great right now. <laughs> Thanks for asking. Today, today's not a great example. <laughs> I mean, have you have you felt paced at any point in the last six months? 
Um, I have not. I have not felt pace. No, no, I'm I'm exhausted. Like I said, I go back to my newborn analogy from earlier. I don't have a great answer on that. I'm tired. Well, tired is one thing, right? But then, like being this far outside norms. I think everyone does feel in some sense that there's no guardrails. Yeah, I think you that's don't true. know what's going to happen. I think and everybody that, feels unsettled. Yeah, and that has like a toll. That has like a, a psychological toll living in that space. And you're in like the white hot center of it, and I'm trying to figure out what that's like. Meanwhile, your phone is just blinking like this. If I start thinking about it, then I'm not going to be able to just keep doing my job. So I don't know how to answer that question. But I'm being as honest as I can. I try not to think about it. If you're flying a plane and you think about the fact that if the plane blows up in midair, you're going to die, do you feel like you can really focus as well? So I'm not thinking about this is just this is my job. Like this is this is what we do. Ask me another question. Is that getting harder? I think I need to sleep more. I think that I just think that self-care is kind of a big thing for everybody right now. And, and can you do that when like the train has left the station, it's going 100 miles an hour? Like how how do you do that? How do you take care of yourself when every morning you wake up and there's another brand new insane fire? So I'm obviously not comparing these events. Um I covered rebuilding at the Trade Center for three years after 9-11. And it's the only thing that I can think of just in terms of like no paradigm for this that feels comparable. Obviously not in terms of scale or scope, and I'm not saying these are similar events, but just in terms of a real world event that we all acknowledge is different than what we've seen before. You know, and if you think about it, that process took several years, right, to get past the DNA altering experience of it. And that's not what this is. But look, it's it's interesting. It's exciting. It's it is exciting, but it's also demanding and and pounding sometimes. I do feel like the session stuff has taken us to a new level of uncertainty because this is very different. Having a president openly musing about whether he has the right to fire a special counsel investigating him is, or tweeting about pardons. I mean, I, I just, this is this is very different. Why is it different? Like, why is that the thing that moves the line? Like, I feel like that line has moved so many times for me. Because just... what we have is that we are, rule of law is what makes this country what it is, right? So if we are no longer acknowledging that rule of law is something that needs to be preserved, then I feel like that gets us to a different territory, or at least an uncertain territory. If it, it's a separation, oh, separation of uh, powers that we're not acknowledging, right? I mean, we typically think about, like, think about everything that Nixon did to try to avoid looking like he was doing this stuff. I mean, Trump just reads the stage directions out loud, right? It's like, and now's the, you know, in the script, it would be, and now's the part where, he, you know, he's going to ominously consider what to do about Sessions. And instead, instead of thinking about it, Trump yells out, now I'm thinking about what to do about Jeff Sessions. Like, it's just, we're not used to this. And I don't know where it ends. Did something just happen? An editor was emailing me. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, I just heard a, oh, like maybe something else crazy. No, 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 no. Do you think he's going to This make... must be the worst interview for you. I apologize. I'm sorry. I, I, I didn't, I didn't want to reschedule, and this has just been a hard morning. Tell me again why it's been hard. Because there's a lot of stuff going on. But there's always a lot of stuff going on. 
I can't explain it. I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. Ask me again tomorrow. But have you felt that way on, on other days? Yeah, there have been other days that I have felt this way, but today I feel this way. <laughs> today feels different. Today just feels... Today feels like a level of sustained assault where it's not just Trump kind of venting. Are you scared? Of what? What's going to happen? No. I mean, no, I'm just covering the story. But um, but I am a little alert to the fact that this feels like it has taken a different course. What would it take to make you think about this thing that you don't want to think about? It's not that I'm not thinking. I mean, no, that's different. It's It's... It's not that I don't think about the enormity of the consequences of what's at stake, right? I mean, it's just that um, I think it is very important. One of So one of the things that I think that we all failed at with Trump and the campaign was there were times where we were overwriting, right? Or we were writing. Because he speaks in such vague terms on so many things that the only way to pin him down is to present him with like a menu of options. So, well, sir, are you talking about this? Are you talking about, you know, fully banning Muslims? Are you talking about just a temporary ban? Are you talking about... And he often tries to take, you know, because he's a deals guy, he holds everything like this, right, and negotiates as much as possible. So we're not used to that. So we would all write that he was saying something then he, that it would give him the chance and say, that's not what I said. So I try to hew to just what is in front of me as much as possible. And that is what I am doing right now. The second half of that is, do you think about the enormity of what's taking place and how, you know, potentially consequential it could be. And I do, but I try to just channel that into the form of a story. Explain that last part to me. I can't think, oh my God, this is really, this is potentially terrifying or this is potentially, you know, because then you're thinking of it in terms of yourself and you can't do that. Do you see broadcast news? Sure. So, you know, the the scene where um, William Hurt is showing off his, his first story and it's about date rape. And he puts himself in the street. He, they, they, they do a, a, a cutaway to him crying. And Albert Brooks says, let's never forget we're the real story, not them. Um, and that's sort of in my head at all times. Like Trump tries to make reporters the story because he knows that that's actually bad for reporters. Um, so we have to not let him do that. I think I'm asking, do you think at some point you won't be able to control that? I don't. I don't know the answer to that. I don't know how to do my own negative prediction. I'm going to stick with positive prediction for now. That's good. We should end on a positive note. (laughs) Yeah. Maggie, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for tolerating the weird conditions. Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor, who turned this around insanely fast, is Janelle Pfeiffer, and our associate producer is Courtney Harrell. Thanks to them. Thanks to our sponsors, MailChimp. Go to readthissummer.com to read along with us and MailChimp, Bombfell, and Babel. And uh, thanks very much to Maggie Haberman. We get into process a lot on this show. Uh, That was a new level of process and uh, not a conversation I'm going to forget anytime soon. We'll see you next week.